0: James, alcoholic. Uh, I invited uh, Evan to this meeting, and I didn't realize I was. Uh, I promised, man. I, I didn't know I was speaking. Um, but we're starting. I will be starting with a with a quick reading from from page eighty four. Um, this is uh, colloquially known as the tenth step promises. Uh, for by for by this time, sanity will have returned. We'll seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we'll find that this has happened automatically. We'll see that our new attitude towards liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn... Uh, this is how we react, so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. And I, um, <clears throat> I always read that before I before I lead because I'm still kind of flabbergasted that that happened. Like I, I you guys didn't see me beforehand, but uh, I was coming to meetings for maybe like a year and was just like a full time newcomer like all the time raising my hand and the idea that I wouldn't always be plagued by just like obsessive thoughts and trying to hide things um and dishonesty and just that became my default setting the fact that that was not always going to be the case I'm still I'm about two and a half years sober I'm still every day lord that that happened um and that happened because I I worked the steps um, through a sponsor uh, the book, um, and it it truly stayed my life. So, Evan Lisa, welcome guys. Um, I'll skip the the dirty stuff, but I I went from I, I like that. We went we had fun. Then we went from fun to. to Fun with consequences, you know, fun, fun with consequences and then just consequences. But I think I, um, I just went from fun to consequences like pretty, pretty instantaneously. Um, from like kind of a heavy but manageable social drinker to like a hope to die, like gutter drunk. Um, you know, I think in October, in August, my partner was saying, Hey, maybe you should cut back. And then, um, by November, I was, you know, winding up in the hospital and being kicked out of rehab and uh, living in my car, like just in that amount of time. And I think, I think that is a result of a lifetime of just avoiding and pushing down emotions, it's just like not dealing with things in a, at all, not even in an unhealthy manner, just like not doing any of the work, um, Alcohol was always the trusty, the trusty coping mechanism, even when it wasn't a problem, and of course, this was leaned on more and more. And so the pandemic comes along, and uh, you know, we know what that was like. Hey, remember that time? Yeah. So uh, I start a new job. There's some trouble at the new job. Um, I get mugged, and that like really throws me through a uh through a loop. I I've been I've lived in Oakland my whole life and uh and you know, understand that that is a part of things that happen sometimes, but because I just had no emotional maturity or have any ways in which to kind of deal with that, all these things kind of just sent me over the tipping point. I I I think of it kind of like as a rubber band and like my whole life it's just been pulling back and back and and finally it finally snapped um and it got worse and it got worse and and as they say you know every relapse was worse and was getting longer and darker um and by the time i i probably spent the first six months coming because i didn't want to get in trouble anymore from family and and friends and and girlfriend and all that stuff But by the time i actually wanted to stop, it was, it was too late. And I like truly couldn't, um, so that, uh, the, the relapse rawness, you know, like that, like fear feeling would keep me sober for like 25, 30 days. Um, and then I would forget, you know, it's that short window where we are willing and ready to do something about it. Um, and to be honest, I what you know, I was working with a sponsor. I was doing the steps slowly, um, but I was doing it all in the sense of, you know, I wanted to get an A in AA. I, I really wanted to like, if I call my three people, check off all the things, then I'll be cured. And like, it was all in my head and it wasn't until it fell into my heart that anything changed. So I, it wasn't as if anything, you know, what, my, what happened, quote unquote, is that, you know, I'm sitting there after a last relapse and I kind of just, you know, gave in, you know, it was, it was, it was almost like a moment of clarity. It was a moment of clarity um, that allowed that that transition to go from working the steps in my head and like being totally mental about everything to actually being able to believe it and embody it, um, which allowed me to finish the steps without relapsing at which I had the spiritual experience that you guys told me would happen. Um, it's it's very annoying that that happens too. Like I really didn't want it to work. It's, it's like such a simple thing and it works for everyone. And they're like, come on, that's, that's not real. Right. And, uh, my life is not just, is not just good within my wildest dreams. It is beyond my wildest dreams right now. Um, it's, uh, the same person who asked me to go, you know, stay in my car, asked me to leave the apartment, and stay in my car. We, we've been married. We moved into this house that we're renting now. Like all these things have started to happen. Um, and it's amazing, but I, you know, I got my life back or, or, you know, it's actually life better than than I dreamed of because I don't think I could have even conceptualized this. And it's not necessarily those things that I just mentioned, those things are great, Um, but it's the capacity to be able to process life as it comes. And there's uh, dealing with feelings and relationships and work and people and anything um, without being ruled by just like fear, anxiety, and depression is, um, I could lose, I don't want to, I could lose all those things I just listed, but, um, I'd be okay. And I think that is the thing that I hold on to. I, am almost done. Thank you. Sorry. (laughs) That's the thing I hold on to. And, um, and it'll happen to you if you just, if you work the steps and, and, um, Continue on in this program. It truly, I, I think that, that I will drink and die. Like I am certainly those kinds of people, uh, person. And if I, if I don't maintain my spiritual condition and continue to work this program, um, so here we are. Thank you for for letting me be of service, Laura. I appreciate it.
1: Hi everybody. I'm Brian Lockwell, I'm alcoholic, and uh, thanks for inviting me uh we i think we're fitting the we're meeting the requirements uh for the tradition that aa ought never be organized tonight mm-hmm. uh because i forgot that i was invited to come speak today and, uh, and i got a call like one minute to like hey you're speaking uh yeah. and uh but that's cool uh, i got time uh, i got a tie hanging out so let me get the i got so i got to get my head straight i This is going to be like a box of chocolates. You're not sure what you're going to get tonight. Uh, uh, Lisa, Kane, welcome. I hope I don't say anything that would keep you from coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous tonight. Uh, It's my sincere hope that that that's true. Uh, My sobriety date is November 23rd of 1991. The most important thing I can tell you about that is it's not my fault. And I think you'll hopefully by the time I'm I'm done... um, that will be abundantly clear that it is not my fault. Uh, uh, I got a sponsor. His name's Charlie Hill. Uh, he would be very upset tonight if I was here without a shirt and tie. Uh, he would say something like, you know, if you can find a picture of Bob and Bill when they were at a meeting um, and they were not in a tie and a coat, then you, sir, might be able to wear, one, not get, get away without wearing one. So, but I respect Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, it's just when I was taught. And um, Uh so I was struck sober in November 23rd in 1991 And James, fantastic lead. Thank you. You're making this easy for me, easier for me. Because um one of the first things that I got a hold of, uh, I got sober in Germany. There were three meetings a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, uh in Schaffenberg, Germany, where I got sober. Um, and that's it. There was no 90 meetings in 90 days, or I'm not complaining, actually. I'm very lucky. For this and i'll try and explain why in a little bit but uh one of the first things i got a hold of for my sponsor were three tapes one uh johnny harris tape and a clancy Emmslin tape and a norm Alpi tape and uh johnny harris uh i've had a chance to meet him and and thank him for being one of my sponsors he had no idea until i i got that look him in the eye and thank him like many many years later like close to 30 years later um but he said a lot of stuff in that recording that I took note of, like become a student of the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, um, which which I, I I've done. And but he said that he believed two things, and this is pertinent, James, to what you opened the meeting with. Honest, I mean it's a it's crazy that you would bring it up the way you did. The first thing he said: I believe two things, and if I didn't believe these things, I'd go get drunk after this meeting. So I was like. I got my notebook out. I'm ready to take notes. And, uh, and he said, I believe that everything uh, that I need for my life to be fulfilled will be given to me, provided to me. What I have to do is fulfill the conditions of this program or reco- provided to me with no thought or effort on my part. What I have to do is fulfill the conditions of this program or recovery in my life and then give this away to anyone who wants it anytime they want it for free and for fun. He said, the second thing I believe is that anything that can harm me or hurt me, including alcohol, has been removed from my life with no thought or effort on my part. What I have to do is fulfill the conditions of this program recovery in my life and then give it away to anyone who wants it anytime they want it for free and for fun. Uh, I have come to believe those same two things. Uh, He's not just an outlier and anomaly it wasn't an acute thing to say in a, in a speaker meeting many years ago. I believe those to be true. Uh, and I'm just an alcoholic. Um, uh, I, I I drank a lot. And, it, <laughs> and I got in a lot of trouble. And I was in the army, uh, where apparently, um, you can drink a lot and for a while and get away with stuff. But I uh, to make a long story short, I don't want to talk a lot about all the trouble I was in, but if you know anything about the Army, uh, I had five Article 15s, a relief for cause, NCOER, and at the end of about eight years and six months of, of service, uh, that's two enlistments, uh, they were kicking they were kicking me out of the Army. Uh, in the civilian world, what that means is, is that I'd lost uh, uh, at least five jobs uh, and had committed offenses that could possibly put me in federal prison. Even if they were light, that in the army, anything that you can be, um, they give you the, they give you a choice of going to trial by court martial or we'll give you this Article 15 where you just take the punishment and go on with your life. And I was like, I'll take the punishment and go on with my life. Thank you very much. And uh, that's just how I lived. And uh, but even more importantly, how I lived was um, I drank my paycheck. I didn't know what was going on, but this is what it looked like. I drank. I would get a paycheck for eight years um, and change. I got a paycheck and I would go and to take the edge off a little bit, I would go drink a little bit. But what happens to me is, is I can't drink moderately. I didn't realize this at first, but the truth is I can't drink moderately. So I spent my paycheck about the first week or so of every month, every month. And, uh, And then I would spend about three to two weeks of every month penniless. And when you're penniless in the army, I couldn't afford shoe polish. I couldn't afford starch. I couldn't afford an iron or an ironing board. I was bumming. I had a reputation for bumming cigarettes and loose change in the hallway. Uh, And on field training exercises, I never had cigarettes. So Uh, because I can't afford them because I drank my paycheck away. And that's just how I lived. And it's a it's a tough life. I don't, I look back sometimes. I wonder how I just made it the eight years living like, cause that's how I, that's just how I lived. Uh, and I got in a lot of trouble repeat like five, five times over that eight year period. Um, I stood behind be in front of my commander with him looking at me, uh, saying what the hell's wrong with you. Um, and he put me on 45 days extra duty, 45 days restriction, take half my pay for two months and sometimes reduce me in grade. Um, and, uh, I got back from desert storm in nineteen ninety one uh in the spring of nineteen ninety one and my life took off after that deployment uh in exactly the same fashion and 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 I knew that I had to do something so uh I, de- I, I went to see an army psychiatrist and um uh they 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 started the the proceedings to kick me out of the army uh towards the end of this summer but um In that spring, I went to see an army psychiatrist and I told him, uh, he said, how can I help you? And I said, I want to quit drinking more than I want to get out of being in trouble. And I'm in a lot of trouble. Um, And he said, okay. And he had me write down something about, I would have taken better notes had I known I've been talking about this later in my life. But he handed me a legal pad and he said, write down something about your life on this legal pad. One page. Uh, and I wrote something. I couldn't tell you to this day what I wrote. I handed it back to him. He read it and did what I imagine most psychiatrists do, said, mm-hmm. 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 yes, I see the problem. Brian, you have a chronic alcoholism. And I'm sorry, I can't help you. And he reached inside his desk, just like this, and he pulled out a copy of As Bill Sees It. And he handed it. To- I never saw this guy again. He handed that to me. He said, why don't you uh, read some of this? And he wrote down uh, the meeting schedule and building and room number for AA meetings in Aschaffenburg, Germany, American AA meetings. Um, And he said, you should go see these guys. They meet Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 8 p.m. And he sent me down the hall to the drug and alcohol counselors. Um, But I showed up at my first AA meeting uh, based on that information. uh, And I was 15 minutes late to that meeting because I couldn't find the room. And I was too embarrassed. I was too ashamed of myself and my life and the situation telling someone I'm looking for an AA meeting to ask anyone in that area where is there's an AA meeting going on in this building and I don't, I can't find it. Um, so I was 15 minutes. It turns out it was outside the building down a little stairs and in a basement. And uh, that's where AA was like in the 1990s, early 1990s in basements, church basements, basements uh, all over the place. Anyway, uh I walked in, I stared at my shoes on it. I they did. I stared. I opened the door, I stared at my shoes. And I, and I said very meekly, I'm sorry, I'm late. And the guy leading the meeting was a guy named Jim. I'll never forget this guy. Uh, it was like he had been waiting for me to crack that door open and mumble. I'm sorry. I'm late. Cause he, he just like, he'd been waiting. He said, late. You're never late to an AA meeting. It took me 35 years to get here. Have a seat. And I'll tell you, I, that's all I remember at that meeting. Um, and I started to go to AA meetings three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I drank between meetings all through the summer in 1991. Uh, in retrospect, I mean, I guess we only really understand our lives in retrospect, right? Um, if we do at all, I, I imagine. Um, I, um, I thought this AA stuff was the flimsiest crap I'd ever heard in my life. I couldn't fathom why a doctor with a degree would send me to Alcoholics Anonymous Um, and these guys talked about these guys two of these guys pulled no punches about AA they said Brian if you got what we got if you have alcoholism it's going to take an active god for you buddy and I was like and I said I I don't want anything to do with that Um, thank you very much one of those guys said, Look, Brian, I know those two guys over there at the other side of the table are. Uh, it's hard to swallow what they're telling you. It's hard to swallow these steps on the wall. It's hard to digest the big book. Why don't you just not drink, even if your butt falls off and come back to another? Why don't you give that a try? And I said, That sounds fantastic. And I drank the entire summer between meetings, desperately trying to not drink under any conditions and just come back to a meeting. Um, it was a very bad time. I was quitting drinking. I started to bounce checks at the PX while I was quitting drinking no matter what um, so that I could drink. It was a bad time. I'm glad I had the experience. I had the experience that that's impossible for me, that those other two guys were right. And the last night that I drank was November 22nd. It was a Friday. I just came out of a field training exercise. We cleaned all our weapons. We put them away. I was going to be on time for the meeting. I was walking down the road. The street Aschaffenburg, I was waiting for a light to turn green so I could cross the street and walk a half a block to the meeting. And out of nowhere, the thought struck me that I could have a couple of Guinness. and I didn't make it to that meeting because I had no defense. I had absolutely no defense when that thought hit me and uh, And I drank. And the last thing I recall is making a bet with a guy who could drink the house out of Guinness, right and uh, and a sizable chunk of my paycheck disappeared once again. And I came to that Saturday uh, sometime uh, late af- late morning, early afternoon, and I knew I had the mind. Some stuff had started to sink in. There. I knew I had the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I would always drink again, and I was I was pretty screwed. And when I drank, I would not be able to control. I knew all that to be true, and I said, I'll do anything AA asked me to do. I'll do, uh, uh, if they want me to to pray i'll pray if they want me to do it and i'll do it if they want me i didn't know exactly how i would and i began to chew on the gymnastic the mental gymnastics in step two on, between november and december and january of the year and um and these guys every time i saw these guys they were like okay brian you ready to make a decision and do an inventory every time <laughs> they, they were in a hurry uh And I was like, I don't know. I think that's a little fast. I'm not even sure if God exists. They were like, well, why don't you just do an inventory? You might find out. And, you know, I was stuck in this limbo that a lot of us get stuck in between steps two and three. I didn't have any experience. I'm not the guy that prayed for anything before I came. I didn't pray. I didn't say, God, get me out of this and I won't do it again. I just took what I had coming. I took the extra duty. I lost the pay. I took the hit to my reputation, whatever. Um, I didn't pray for anything. And uh, I, I had started to to pray because they told me to stuff my boots under my bed and when I got on my knees in the morning. Because they said, for you, Brian, to bend your knees to bend your ego. And that's probably a pretty important deal. Why don't you get on your knees and scoop them out? And while you're there, ask God to keep you sober a day. And I started to do that with no no belief or experience whatsoever. And I started to have these strange experiences, actually. And I'd go run into my sponsor be like, I'm having this weird experience. And he'd say, just keep doing what you're doing. That's fantastic. And the Army sent me to a treatment facility in, like, I think about February of 1992. An um, uh, in, inpatient treatment at Frankfurt Army Hospital. And I went in the middle of my quandary of being somewhere uh, between step two, unable to sincerely take the third step. And I wanted to. And they sent, they, they they would take us to meetings during this inpatient treatment. And this uh, Native American guy who lived in Frankfurt, Germany at the time, told my story about this. He said, I wanted to do the, I just had problems being sincere because I had no experience with God. How do you go from this no experience to an experience, this strange middle ground where I want to do it and I want, and he told he told my story about that. And he said he walked outside one day and he said, God, I'm stuck and I want to do this and I want to be sincere and wholehearted. Can you please give me something to, to go on? And he looked down and there was a four leaf clover between his feet. And uh, and I thought, man, it's freaking amazing. Uh, and I walked out to PT the next morning uh, and I said, God, you did something for that guy. Maybe you could do something for me. And I looked down and there were two four leaf clovers between my feet. Um, it roasts my noodle to this day that something like that should happen to a guy like me. And I, I didn't want to leave them, so I picked them and I put them on the windowsill because I wanted to keep them. And uh, and I did the PT run around the Frankfurt Army Hospital, um, like a mile and a half or something like that. And I came back and they were gone. But the the impact on me uh, was I I I was fine. I didn't have to like keep them inside pressed in my big book like I wanted, but. Um, I started my four step almost immediately because another thing that those guys did is something a little different than uh, the way most a lot of people sponsor today they 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 gave me a big book, made me pay for it, <laughs> and they said, "Read this, do everything it says, come ask questions that That was sponsorship for me. Not and they were examples though. They talked about this stuff at meetings. They talked about it how it how they practiced what they did to practice, how they got up in the morning, asked God to direct their stuff. Th- that's all they talked about. And I met with my sponsor often, and I did, I thought he was a spiritual genius. And after I read the book uh alone in my barracks room a couple, three times, it began to dawn on me that he just peppered everything he said with big book stuff. That's all he that's all he taught. It just all worked in there. I was like, he's not making any of this up. It's all, um, and that's, so I just read the directions and, and, and when I said, okay, I'm willing, I, I, you're the direct, I can make that decision. I had some experience crazy as it might sound. And I launched in the four step and I, I sat down to do my four step inventory while I was in treatment. They were, they were ecstatic about that in treatment. Um, and, uh, and I, I wrote down like three names and uh, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm such, I'm really nice guy. I'm never angry about anything um, to this day. And uh, <laughs> I uh, wrote down those, like my stepmom abused me from the age of four to 17. That was easy. My dad let it happen. My platoon sergeant's kicking me out of the army. And I don't know, I can't think of anyone else. And for the, about the first time in my life, um, I, I asked for something other than to keep me sober. And I said, I put my pencil down and I said, God, can you help me do this four step? And uh, almost instantly, the thought struck me um, that if I could give a piece of my mind to someone without consequence, who would that be? And I wrote down 69 entries in like five minutes or less. Uh, Weird, crazy stuff came out of that. Like, it's not like I thought about it ever, but if it came to mind, I wrote it like the janitor in second. You know, it says that we went back through our lives. Nothing mattered. A janitor in second grade had looked at me and said, I got your number, kid. You're a liar. Well, he was right. But for some reason, that came floating up into my memory when, uh, when I asked God for help. So I wrote it down. Uh, and I wrote uh, 69 entries down. It was easy to write down why. Um, very easy. And uh, it, it was sometimes difficult to pinpoint whether it was self-esteem, security ambitions or personal relations. But I got tired of writing self-esteem. I wrote that about 69 times. I'll tell you what. Uh, self-esteem, that was a big one for me. I, everything I did, I learned a lot from doing four steps. I learned that everything, almost everything I did was because I'm afraid of what you think of me. And I'm afraid of what you think of me because I'm trying to meet my own needs. And if I got to meet my own needs and I really don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can trust you because I I can't, because I'll probably lie to get what I think I need or cheat or steal or dissemble, right? Not all the time. I mean, I want people to think I'm a good guy and that I won't lie and that I'm honest. And I want you to think that about me, but when it comes down to it and I got to meet my needs, I'm morally flexible. Um, And if I am, then you are. And that's the world I lived in before I got to A.A um but you know i just i learned that from doing the four step but um and i uh because i didn't have a lot of direction and i took it exactly at face value i began to apply the prayer life of the four step immediately for the worst of the worst of my you know that woman i told you about my stepmom i literally abused me from the age of four to 17 uh the last time and i was angry the last time she swung something it was a baseball bat i caught it mid-swing ripped it out of her hands and i I don't know why I didn't beat her to death. I'm glad I didn't to this day. uh, I would have started an early prison career, most likely. Um, But uh, I began to ask God for patience, tolerance, pity, understanding, kindness, and love for a clearly sick person. And not sick because I'm better than you, sick, but sick just like me. Driven by self, driven by fear, driven by delusion, right? The delusion that I can rest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if I just manage well. Uh, And Gosh darn it, when I'm managing the world, I know what all you need to do. If you would just do that, we'd all be good. So, and she had the same, same. I probably got it from her maybe a little bit of just taking control of my life and the world around me, being angry about it. Uh, But I applied that almost immediately. And it took me probably several years with that one, but most of my resents, see that list of 69? I would say a good 70% of that disappeared like a wisp of smoke because I started to ask for kindness, love, tolerance, helpfulness. I, that I don't like your symptoms and the way they affect me, but those are symptoms of your, you don't like my symptoms either. I trust me. Right. And that's a view that I've kept with me my whole sober life. Uh, And I made a list of my fears and I began to ask God to remove my fear and direct my attention as a part of my daily life. And I I didn't, I didn't have a huge uh, sex inventory, relationship inventory, but uh, I will tell you that I, I asked God to mold my ideals and almost immediately a picture of Cary Grant in black and white movies popped into my mind. And, uh, you know, somebody who's kind, considerate, uh, not power driving. Um, you know, when I treat my wife like my vision of Cary Grant, black and white movies, and just say, yes, darling. She is happy as a bug. I've been married 30 years behind that simple thing. I'll tell you what. Um, and uh, subsequently, I've done more inventories than that. And uh, the last time I did a, a sex inventory, the thought struck me when I said, please mold my ideals and help me live up to them, that uh, God didn't give me my wife to meet my needs. He gave me my wife to, for me to help contribute to meeting hers. That's why I have a wife. And uh, I'm trying to live up to that, right? Um, and I took that inventory when I finished it in treatment. And uh, unbeknownst to me, the, the AA Mafia in Frankfurt, Germany in 1992 was, uh, was strong. Some guy showed up to sign for me at 6 p.m. That I didn't know he was coming. They came and knocked on my, my room. And they said, someone's here to sign for you. And I was like, what do you mean someone's here to sign? They said, someone, I went down. He's like, I'm going to take you out of here and we're going to go do your fifth step. And I was like, what? He said, yep, I heard you finished your fourth step. And uh, he signed for me. And I went, um, now the day that I was struck sober was a Saturday, November 23rd. There was no AA meetings that day. So I went the only place that I knew of uh, from my youth that had any, inkling of spirituality uh, and god uh, of of my misunderstanding and i went to the catholic church to a late night mass and i went to confession and that priest helped save my life because he said i'm not going to make you do penance for something you have no power or control over and why don't we talk after the mass and i said okay and i went back to the rectory where he lived and and i sat on his couch at about two in the morning he said do you really want to get over this his alcoholism thing. And I said, Oh God, more than anything. And he said, what's the worst things you ever did in your life. And the three things bubbled into my consciousness. And he let me sit in silence until after sunrise. Cause I couldn't tell him I couldn't bring myself to speak those things out loud at that time. Um, and when that guy signed me out that, that day from treatment, uh, I told him everything on my fist, on my four step, except for those three things. And I went back and I had a really bad week, and it was the last week of treatment, and they still took us to meetings, and every meeting they took me to, uh, off campus, uh, the topic was step five, and how, uh, invariably, uh, we got drunk when we left out certain facts about our lives that we had only thought we were, uh, had learned humility, we only, right, uh, and, uh, we graduated from that place, and they, they bust us to free of charge. I didn't pay for anything. They bust us to the largest English-speaking AA convention in Germany, maybe Europe at the time, uh, in, in, in Stuttgart, Germany, and put us up in a hotel uh, to go to this AA conference. And uh, it, was, it was freaking fantastic. And in line, while I was getting a room, Standing next to me was a guy that I'd been seeing at AA meetings in Frankfurt and I said, "Hey man, I did a fist step last week and I left some things off." And he said, "Why don't we go take care? We left line." He said, "Let's take care of it right now." And uh and I told that guy those three things. Um and uh I went back to my room and I got a room. And uh uh I followed the directions in the book. I had nobody telling me what to do and I, it says we took an hour. So I took an hour and I went back over the steps and I thought, man, I've done about the best I could do. And I, and I'm willing, you know what speaking those things out loud to this day does to me, it makes me willing to have God change me fundamentally. So I don't ever do them again. You know, that part on page 25 where it says we got a solution. You're not going to like it, (laughs) but it requires the confession of shortcomings, the leveling of our pride. Those two things are together in my mind today and they were written well. Because when I speak out loud, my shortcomings, it levels my pride and leveling my pride makes me say, God, would you please just change me so I don't ever do that stuff again. So I don't have to sit and be ashamed in front of another human being. And uh, and I, that step six kind of takes care of itself. If you do step five completely, I think. Right. Uh, and uh, and I and I got on my knees and I said, God my creator, you can have all of me. I did the seven step prayer, read it straight out of the book. And uh, and I had a pretty cool day that day, rest of the day. And later that night in the speaker meeting, um, and this is a long way from a kid who thought this was the flimsiest bullshit I ever heard in my life, right? But it, I was sitting in the meeting and it was like somebody was standing behind me, leaning over my shoulder into my ears, speaking out loud saying, God is here. And I turned around and I, nothing was there. And I looked out. And I could see all these people at these tables listening to the speaker. The speaker was a guy named John L. I I remember this night, crystal clear, a guy who' was a speaker named John L from Chicago, who had gotten sober in Germany, he had a nickname named Bonhof John as a train out train train station, John. Bonhof is a train station. And uh, this guy had a fantastic he had a way more I don't have an exciting story. I just got drunk in the barracks spent my page this guy would get drunk in chicago and come to naked in a house in germany that wasn't his like yeah like crazy story like that's exciting i kind of wish i could have a story like but my story's my own and it's okay for me and but i remember this guy's story and this thing standing whatever was standing behind me and it was audible at least to me not anybody else apparently but kept telling me god is here and it just wouldn't shut up and then it Uh, The meeting ended and I went back to my room and I fell asleep. And the next morning at the Sunday morning spiritual breakfast meeting, which every AA conference has. And if you haven't been to one, you get your butt to a conference. They're great. The Sunday spiritual speaker meeting is great. And this thing started talking behind me again, telling, informing me that God is here. And um, about halfway through that speaker meeting, like the universe vibrated. I couldn't really tell you what happened except that I uh, became aware that I was standing in the presence of God. And I can't speak about it almost uh normally to this day. Like you can hear, I get a little weeping uh because it, it changed my life from that day to this. Uh I couldn't say tiddly wings for the rest of the day without without crying. And people would ask me, like, are you okay? And I'd be like, I'm fine. It's wonderful, it's a great good day. And um Uh, I used to think that uh, the steps placed me in a position to stand in the presence of God but I've revised my idea about that lately to just say that I think I became aware of something that always has been. I think that we're always standing in the presence of God. We're just not always aware of it Uh, because we can't be separated. This is stuff and the stuff that AA has kind of been given to me over some time and I don't Um, I read stuff from like Chuck C and listen to old recordings and, and, you know, um, I don't think I'm just an outlier in this sort of thinking anymore. I think it's impossible to be disconnected. It's only possible to feel disconnected from God. Um, And, you know, we put those blockages up through self. I think our basic, I think there's one character defect and that is self-sufficiency, self-reliance. All character defects that I can put a name to, even the re, even the results of that resentments, fears, relationship problems, um, all stem from self reliance. And there's only if and that's a spiritual illness. Self reliance is a spirit, and I think we all suffer from it. I think that if that's true, um, I I believe that to be true. then, then spiritual wellness is God reliance. And that's what AA is asking me to seek on a daily basis is just to be reliant upon God rather than upon me. So uh, I had a great experience and I started my sponsor. uh, I met my sponsor uh, after that conference. They took me back to my unit. Um, I was on like a year probation for the Army. Uh, And... uh, my sponsor uh, had me start step nine, eight, and nine immediately. I was—I made an appointment the, like the next day or two to meet with my first sergeant and my commander, so I could go into their office and tell them, you know, what? when I while I was drinking and working for you, I dropped balls. Uh, I was the training and assistant operations NCO in the unit, and because um, they fired me from the other jobs that I had, so they, you know, um, they thought it would be easier to keep an eye on me if I that's when I got an article 15 actually for, for while I was on extra duty for an article 15, I got another article 15 for drinking on duty because they let me do my extra duty doing my work in the office. So I pulled in a rack of beer till midnight while I was typing up memos and stuff. And I forgot to take the trash out and uh, they caught me anyway. Um, you know, I, I knocked on that guy's door, made an appointment with my through my platoon sergeant and knocked on that guy's door and, and came in and said, sir, I appreciate the opportunity to go to treatment. And uh, uh, I have to come and tell you that uh, I dropped balls while I worked for you uh, that affected other people's careers and yours. And I don't even know how to fix it. But I i had like an opportunity to try and I don't even know how. Uh the strangest thing happened: I stayed in his office for like an hour. That guy warmed right up to me. <laughs> it, was just, it made me it was weird. And it made me uncomfortable, to be honest with you, at the time. I was like, I have no idea what the hell's going on here. This guy's being friendly. He's kicking me out of the army. Uh, I, to this I, I met that guy after I, got, I had to get out of the army a year later. There was no way that I could stay in the army. I was really allowed to leave with an honorable discharge and told, thank you, never come back. That was actually what happened, honestly. Um, and I got out of the Army in Monterey because that's where they sent me to for my last year in the Army uh, to Fort Ord. I was there right before Fort Ord closed. And I uh, got out of the Army in Monterey and I was a happy, sober. I had been struck sober. I did the steps, had a barnstorming spiritual experience. Um, uh, it's a freaking wonderful life. And uh, but I had its problem. Um if uh if I told you I'd meet you at the Big Sur meeting on Sunday, which they had this amazing meeting in, in Big Sur where these redwood trees were. And uh, um, but if I told you I'd meet you there and I got up and decided I didn't want to go, so you didn't have cell phones back then unless you were like super uber rich. And uh I and I just if I if I I didn't want to go, I just wouldn't go. And if you didn't like that, then you clearly had a problem and you should talk to your sponsor and pray about it, right? And uh A friend of mine got me outside the Monterey uh, Lano Club one night, and he said, and he like put me up against the wall. And this is like a retired infantry staff sergeant, like golden gloves boxer, this guy named Jim. He's a tough dude, and he put me up against the wall, and uh, and he said, if you're gonna have any friends around here, you're gonna be where you say you're gonna be, you're gonna do what you say you're gonna do, because you're an asshole. And I went home, and I got on my knees, where I'd been taught I should. Ask God for something I, I probably I'm and I said with some earnestness, dear God, help me be responsible. And uh, I met my wife that night. We were married a month later. I had a stepson. I had to start paying insurance on my car. I had to get a real job. And I think God has been working on that prayer from that day to this. Uh, uh, I'm not a guy that'll tell you, be careful, which I go ahead, ask for it. Just be prepared to do some work afterwards. I got to say. Uh, oh, wait. Um, am I at my five minute mark? Or have you been trying? If you've been trying to tell me and I haven't been paying attention, I apologize. But look, I got too long a story to tell between that and now. I've been, I, I got back in the Army. Amazing. I should never have been allowed back in. Honestly, I tried to get back in, and some master sergeant at military processing said, Look, never come back here and waste my recruiter's time or my time ever again. Don't do I got more important things to do than try and put some guy who's never going to be back in the army back in the army. Go away. And I I was like, I wrote my congressman. And, you know, you know anything about the military, you can do something like that, which I did. But then not only do you piss off that one master sergeant at that one, you piss off everyone like between the Pentagon and that guy. And you're not going to get what you want. Um miraculously, Perscom called me at my house one day and said, we have a waiver that we don't know existed. Like they made up for just for you. And would you like to join the Army today? I, I still have, I have an I Love Me book now full of Army stuff. And uh, uh, that's in the back of that, that waiver that you can't get that put me back in the Army. And uh, I got back in the Army in August of 99. And I'd been married uh, I got my married my wife. We've been married. I uh, I lived in sub poverty for a year, working at two factories, with a trailer with holes in the floor in Minnesota. Uh, and I got back in the army, and uh, uh, I had a a really good. It was a different life than the first stint I had. I had two careers. I had a career where I was a drunk, and I had a career where I was sober. And I retired in 2015 as a master as one of those master sergeants. Um, I went to jump school when I was 38. I worked in special operations in the redheaded stepkids of civil affairs. And, you know, we're not door kickers. We hang out and drink tea and smoke cigarettes with the locals. Uh, it was a cool job. Uh, if you can get it. And it's miraculous. I shot on the army rifle. Right, and, and I'm still married to the same woman. I got two boys. And uh, we're as happy today as the day we met. And that has everything to do with AA because AA tells me things like avoid retaliation and argument, like the plague. Right? That I have I should demonstrate that I can be sober, considerate, and hopeful, regardless of what anyone says or does. And I have to demonstrate that. And I, I make an effort to demonstrate those things. My my home life is pretty good. My work life is pretty good. Um and uh, and today I'm a PhD candidate at UNLV studying political science, and uh, my life is beyond what everything I, I could have predicted. Um, uh, I'm not tearing up anybody's life around me anymore, uh, and I get to be kept sober. It's not my fault, um, and I that's probably where I should end because I'm out of time. Thanks for inviting me, and I um, love y'all.